0: Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Paul Vogie, founder of Ourobora, sparkling water flavored with herbs, fruits, and flowers. In a category full of added sweeteners, poor ingredients, and bitter aftertaste, Ourobora was created to offer a natural, delicious alternative. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Paul Vogie of Ourobora. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. So I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Uh, so where did you grow up and what would you say your
1: childhood was like? Sure. Uh, I grew up a couple of places. So I, I uh, until I was 14, I lived in Rye, New York. So I grew up in Rhine, New York. It's a suburb of New York City, like 20 miles north of, the, uh, of Manhattan. Um, I'm the youngest of five siblings. So I grew up uh, mostly in very crowded cul-de-sacs with a lot of other kids. And then when I was uh, just before eighth grade, actually, my family moved to London. So I lived in London for a few years mm-hmm. and then right at the end of high school, moved to Southern California. So mostly New York, but a couple other spots as well. Definitely. Would you say that you had an entrepreneurial mindset say
0: uh, lemonade stands or Sony
1: products growing up? Yeah, for sure. Actually, that that cul-de-sac I just referenced, we, we did many, many a lemonade stand there. <laughs> um, and there were enough kids that there was always someone to trade baseball cards with or um the, the small kind of entrepreneurial dopamine hits you get as a child. We had plenty of those in that cul-de-sac, and then in you know middle school and high school, I started to get into vintage T-shirts. Uh, I was eventually selling like sports equipment, sports socks. Uh, in college, I had various things I was always slinging out of my dorm room. So um, that actually makes it sound illegal. It wasn't illegal. <laughs> they, they weren't drugs. Um, but yeah, all of that to say both elementary, middle, high college, all the above was always doing something entrepreneurial. Yeah. Um, and then after college, actually, in addition to my regular day job, we would do plenty of side hustles and my wife and I had a, we had a Christmas tree stand for a few years at our old house in Colorado. So, wow. um, definitely was an entrepreneurial kid. Certainly didn't, uh, I, I had two parents that were lawyers. They didn't have like a model for entrepreneurship. I see. It, it um, But yeah, I think maybe as uh, it became a more accepted way of pursuing life after college, I was really excited Mm to go be an entrepreneur for sure. So I saw that you went on to
0: UCLA. Uh, What did you study there? And what was the projection going into UCLA as well?
1: sure so i studied political science there so not at all related political science and film um, so i watched a lot of movies and watched a lot of presidential debates yeah. um, but <laughs> not that those would really help you all that much for entrepreneurship um, <laughs> when i went there i, I went to UCLA because i loved their film and tv program I, I wanted to maybe go into like television writing mm-hmm. um and then somewhere in college kind of just felt like, Hey, I, I want to uh, do something where you kind of make your own luck. Now er- everything involves a lot of luck, you know, Yeah. whether you're a TV writer or uh, a lawyer or whatever, you're, you're probably waiting by the phone, waiting on a big break from someone, mm-hmm. but it felt like at least entrepreneurs got to hustle and increase their odds probably more so than most professions. So mm-hmm. somewhere in college, I had that change of heart of like, Hey, I can just see what, what we can do uh, on our own, you know, mm-hmm. without any big structure. Definitely.
0: With your time there, were you involved with any athletics or clubs such as entrepreneurship clubs?
1: Yeah, you know, I wasn't involved in a single entrepreneurship club, funny enough, and I think there actually wow. is a really great one at UCLA, because I've, yeah. I've since gotten to know a couple of students that have done that, or former students, um, and actually, uh, there's a guy named Steve O'Dell that is a company named- uh, Tenso, we, we've had him on Tenso. the pod as well. Oh, you yeah. have? okay, so yeah. Steve and I actually went to college together, wow. funny enough. And I actually think Steve was involved in that entrepreneurship scene. I'm not sure for sure, but I, I think he was. So all that to say, there's, if you're listening to this and you go to UCLA, like, yeah, there probably is a much better scene. I just totally wasn't involved with it. Yeah. Um, I was, yeah, I was in a fraternity. I was in a couple of like on-campus clubs. I played uh, UCLA Ultimate Frisbee for a time. Okay. Um, so definitely had a, a pretty well-rounded college experience.
0: Definitely. So, uh, following your time there at UCLA and prior to OraBora, then, uh, what kind of jobs were you working?
1: Sure. So, uh, immediately after college, I actually, um, I mentioned, mentioned the vintage t-shirt thing. Mm -hmm. So that was like the first, uh, I guess like real adult foray into entrepreneurship as in, you know, wasn't making uh, any other money elsewhere, but my wife, Maddie and I got married straight out of college. Um, we, lived in a camper and sold vintage t-shirts around the country, which I know sounds like a joke, but it's exactly what we did. Um, And the idea there was, hey, can we buy uh, old 80s, 90s, early 2000s retro t-shirts for less than $5 and sell them for more than $20. Um, And usually we bought them for less than $2 and sold them for more than $30. So we were going to these rag houses and buying t-shirts and a number of other articles of clothing t-shirts is just what I was most interested in. Yeah. And then go to college campuses or music festivals or fairs around the country. So, you know, we, I think we crisscrossed the country that year in like eight or nine times, you know, from coast to coast, like wow. plenty of miles on the car. Yeah. Um, it was a blast, but totally not scalable. So eventually we're like, <laughs> Hey, we're hired. Uh, we've sifted through way too many shirts. It's time to like have a more normal life. So we ultimately settled in Denver, Colorado at the end of that whole thing.
0: Okay. Um, I'm, I'm curious then with that venture, um, following that venture, how did you, uh, grasp a job and what, what was that job following that after selling t-shirts for this period?
1: Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I kind of thought, okay, I clearly like being an entrepreneur. I like startups. Yeah. What if I go work for like a more mature startup okay. and see all of the pieces, you know, how does marketing work with sales? How does sales work with operations? How does operations work with finance, et cetera? Um, cause yeah, when you're, slinging t-shirts out of a car, even though it was yes, profitable. And we ultimately, you know, did okay. Like all of those things were kind of meshed together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started working for a software company called Gusto. They had just opened an office in Denver. I bet at the time they had like a couple hundred employees. So it was, it was you know, not that small, but not that big either. Yeah. Um, and mostly did marketing and sales for them. Um, so got to see both of those organizations kind of go from blobs to like firm, you know, bureaucracies, Mm -hmm. which taught me two things. One, okay, how, how to, how does marketing, sales, ops, finance, talk to one another. And two, I don't want to be a part of any bureaucracy ever. So it was kind of, I don't know, the last couple of months of that job feeling like, okay, I need to go smaller. So I actually worked after that at a startup studio is what they called themselves. Uh, It's a firm called Saturn five. Mm -hmm. They operate probably more so now like a small private equity firm where they buy cash flowing businesses and start new ventures themselves. Yeah. Um, And I was just an associate, but for a couple of partners that I really respected and got to learn about a bunch of kind of unsexy cash flowing businesses. So we were buying corporate cleaning businesses, concrete pouring businesses, trampoline parks, like kind of all over the place. Mm. Um, And that was probably the most well-rounded, you know, mini MBA I could have imagined that, yeah. Kind of cemented in my brain like okay i want to do what these guys are doing you know i want to be the entrepreneur now definitely it was a great job because i was kind of tangential to entrepreneurs but definitely made me realize okay i need to go start something similar to the t-shirts but hopefully in a much more scalable way
0: definitely that's that's interesting then so coming from the acquisition side and purchasing these businesses i'm curious what inspired you to branch out and create sparkling water a c brand from that previous venture
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say like, I, I wasn't at all thinking of it as, as thinking, Hey, I need to go make a direct to consumer brand to be honest. The direct to consumer thing was like a total surprise, even to me. Um, we, yeah, I guess I felt like there were two funny things that happened. So when we were living in Colorado and my wife, Maddie had a totally separate job. So we could, we could absolutely live off of one salary in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, Hey, we have this drink, um, I'm looking to start something like let me sell this drink and if it doesn't work we're living in colorado and i'll i'll drink all the cans myself and we'll move on with our life Mm -hmm. um but if it does work like great i I get to be an entrepreneur we have a business we're really passionate about we love the prod the products etc um yeah the irony there was like i quit my job in the spring of 2019 and then in the early summer of 2020 like six weeks later my wife got a job in San Francisco, so mm. very quickly we could not survive with one salary. Yeah, and was it totally kickstarted this whole sparkling water journey uh, pretty quickly? Wow! So, deciding
0: on the naming for that brand, Aura Bora, uh, where does that sure. branch off from, and what is the inspiration towards um, solving an industry problem in the existing sparkling water category?
1: Yeah. So I I was drinking a lot of sparkling water. I guess I should start there. So at at both of the jobs I just referenced, the software company and and the small private equity firm, we had a fully stocked pantry with drinks, beverages, snacks, et cetera. Um, And in that Uh, Pantry, we had kettle potato chips and Justin's peanut butter and Jenny's ice cream and purely Elizabeth granola and a number of kind of better for you craft options in what would have been thought as commoditized categories previously, you know, ice cream, peanut butter, potato chips. Um, And then we had LaCroix sparkling water and and something didn't make sense to me because when we watched with myself and other colleagues of mine, by far the item that was consumed the most was LaCroix. The sparkling Mm. water was what people were consuming the most of units per day. Yeah. And it was by far the thing we were enjoying the least. So we're all drinking it, but none of us are liking it. Um, and that just felt like a weird dichotomy that I, I couldn't make sense of. So I felt like, okay, what if we did a similar uh, kind of artisanal craft, you pick an adjective of your choosing option here, uh, and we could all be hopefully more satisfied. So that was the, the get-go of it. it. Was I was drinking 10 to 12 cans. I wanted a better sparkling water. At work, it seemed like other people felt at least that the sparkling waters that we had were unremarkable. Yeah. Could we make one that was remarkable? So we bought a soda stream, Maddie and I were kind of tinkering in our kitchen with like, we had various essential oils, which later we found out you shouldn't consume. So you're listening (laughs) to this, don't consume essential oils Um, (laughs) and made like weird concoctions and odd, whimsical flavors. And then invited friends and friends of friends and total strangers to try them. And then somewhere towards the end of 2019 felt like, okay, let's uh, let's, put these in cans. Um, so we made like a thousand cans, went to a trade show and we kind of thought this trade show is gonna be the sink or swim. If this trade show goes well, we're gonna do this thing If it goes poorly, we won't. Actually, it actually was just me because Maddie was working and paying our rent, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, and luckily the trade show went really well. And Amazing. we were kind of off to
0: the races. Amazing, so if you can explain, what did the R&D process look like in those early days and uh, depicting a new taste and a new flavor that you desired? Was that yourself? How
1: did that work? To start, we were drinking essential oils and mixing with things we found in our house, which you shouldn't do. Then we had many iterations, friends, family, et cetera, uh, where it turned out from there. So we had a couple of flavors we were really, really excited about. I know this now because I've been in the business a few years, but at the time, I didn't realize what a hub Boulder, Colorado was for natural products. Mm. So it's a little bit like, you know you want to be a stunt man and you happen to live in the Hollywood Hills and you had no idea that movies were happening near you. Yeah. Like everyone I ran into and asked, Hey, can you help me with finding a food scientist or finding a co-packer or finding a can guy? And I was amazed how helpful everyone was in Boulder. I was Mm. like, oh my gosh, this guy knows a food scientist. This guy knows this. And and now I realize how naive I was. Well, of course they do. Like half of them work for food and beverage companies. Yeah, that's just where I lived. Um, So just to give you some idea of how ignorant I was to the industry. Mm -hmm. Lucky for us, the first, you know, our our food scientists that helped with some of the R&D, kind of taking our flavors he's the guy that said, Hey, you definitely can't mix things with essential oils. Let me get you herbal extracts. You'll accomplish a similar purpose. Um, the can person, our first co-packer, they were all a seven minute drive from one another. So wow. to start it was actually like relatively convenient. Now, of course it's not at all like that. Yeah. Um, but that was the beginning of taking kind of what we made in our kitchen and making like a real viable, scalable, drinkable product. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we took, I think it was like 11 flavors to a, that bigger group and yep. said, hey, which of these 11 are the best? And there were kind of five clear winners and we launched with those five.
0: Amazing. Uh, you mentioned trade shows and I know that's a vital part of D2C marketing as well. I'm curious in the early days, uh, what were your main marketing strategies and your uh, your position in that category for Ouroboros?
1: Yeah, so we, uh, sorry, the, the question is, trade shows, how do we market, or how do we market DTC? Uh,
0: what was your DTC marketing strategy? I know trade shows is a part of that, but also yeah, of course. other strategies.
1: Sure, sure. Um, so when we started, you know, this is pre-COVID, which feels like a caveman era in the internet. But yeah. Um, Shipping a 10 pound box across the country was like not something, with the exception of maybe Hint, very many people did. Um, so I certainly didn't think, oh yeah, we're gonna be a huge direct to consumer company. Like I, I probably thought it'd be less than 5% of our sales to I start. See. In fact, our first website, you couldn't even buy anything. It was just like pictures of the cans and descriptions of the products and ingredient panels and that's it. Yeah. And then kind of like just before COVID started, we were like, oh, maybe we should allow people to buy things on our website. This is like February of 2020. And then of course, starting in March, like I was driving to the post office twice a week to deliver things, but we didn't do a paid ad or really any form of marketing beyond like the occasional email until October of 2020. So that entire year, uh, I, I like cringe to think the, uh, amazing customer acquisition costs I missed out on as a result of just being stupid, but, um, (laughs) Uh, Eventually, we realized like, oh, wow, we're actually getting good return purchases and like a great lifetime value from these customers. Maybe we should start doing some paid ads. So starting in like end of October of 2020, we started with Facebook like everyone does and branched out to Facebook and Instagram and then branched out into Facebook, Instagram and Pinterest and Mm -hmm. various other social media uh, sites. We tried for a time to get some of those turns to happen in store as a result, like an ad you might get served like, hey, buy us at, you know, Whole Foods. I'm not convinced that anyone has that figured out yet. Um, today, we have an amazing director of e-commerce named Cameron in a far more thorough marketing funnel. Um, but to start, it was like, do the little you know and try your best. Definitely. Um, yeah.
0: Definitely. Uh, with that marketing, what would you say is the main demographic uh, overall, if you can depict
1: that? Yeah, of course. Um, so for us, the main demographic, you know, about... Two thirds of our customers are women, one third are men, um, okay. kind of our sweet spot is a woman from 25 to 35 living in a city, um, yeah. on, on either coast, which obviously a lot of brands are targeting that exact same demographic. I'd say we probably skew more female than a lot of brands, um, and probably skew, you know, slightly older than a lot of those brands, but uh, otherwise that's, that's our demographic.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, uh, I, on the shark tank experience that I'm going into that, if you don't mind, um, how did, no, this, of course. Yeah, how did this opportunity arise uh, to bring your product there at such an early stages as well? And what was that like for you as a founder?
1: Yeah, um, it, it was crazy, to be honest. Yeah. So uh, soon after COVID, April of 2020, I think it was like two weeks into the lockdown, I got an email from someone claiming to be a Shark Tank casting person, which I, of course, just thought was like a friend with more time on his hands as a result of COVID just like pulling my leg. <laughs> um After a few phone calls, I realized, okay, this is actually a casting director at Shark Tank. And, you know, most people like apply through ABC's website and I think they get tens of thousands of applications. Lucky for us, whenever they have a guest shark on, they have a specific producer and casting director looking for uh, stories or entrepreneurs in that industry. So for us, like Daniel Libitsky was going to be a big guest shark that season. I actually think he's continued to do it since. Mm -hmm. Um, He's the founder and CEO of Kind. Yeah. Which they just sold for some billion number of dollars to Mars. Um, so they were looking for early stage food and beverage companies, lucky for us. And, and the casting director, I think had tried us at a grocery store in Los Angeles and liked it. So that was the beginning. Um, there were many, many months of like paperwork, videos, audition videos, you know, scripts, et cetera, going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Obviously most of the show is unscripted, but that first like two minutes when sharks walk out is scripted yeah. pretty heavily. Um, until we were just playing the waiting game. Like there was a time where Maddie and I were saying, Hey, if this doesn't work, this has gotta be the thing we have wasted the most time on in our entire lives. Like Mm. just the number of hours that went into it. And then we got a call one day in July of 2020 saying, Hey, can you be in Las Vegas in six days? And we drove to Las Vegas. We quarantined in a hotel room for 10 days. And then uh, we filmed on Shark Tank. So it was a absolutely wild experience.
0: Definitely. So, I've had some uh, previous guests who've been on Shark Tank as well, and they discussed that there's a spike in the e commerce store. Uh, of course. Following the airing, I'm curious, what was your POV on that as well for your store?
1: Yeah, gosh. Um, so, it, it, I, I'll say there are like two things you kind of think will happen with Shark Tank. And then once you look into it more, you realize, oh, okay, here's where the real value is. Yeah. So, of course, like, getting on television in front of all those eyeballs and getting them to buy things at your store. Like, yes, that is the thing most people focus on. Yeah. And then every rerun that happens, you get like another uh, kind of dose of success from those same people. Um, for us, what we ended up being most excited about was actually we had this like really great pop-up offer. So we got to collect a lot of email addresses. So yes, we got a huge spike in the store sales for like the preceding you know, two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. But now we, that's when we really started our like now uh, huge marketing funnel of, great, we're going to send this many emails and texts and more social posts. And now we have a huge base of emails to throw into the Facebook algorithm for middle of funnel acquisition. So mm. that is what ended up being the most valuable about Shark Tank. Yeah. And then probably the next most valuable that I wouldn't have thought of at all was the retailers that watched the show. So like probably twice a week now, I'm on a, a Zoom call with a retailer that we're trying to sell our product into. Wow. And they might say, hey, I saw you on Shark Tank a couple of years ago. I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you. That's awesome. That's amazing. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get into the store, but I would say more likely than not, it makes them, you know, yes, they say yes to the meeting and usually we get in the store. So yeah. I was not expecting those things, uh, but they have certainly been a, a huge piece of the business so far. It's amazing.
0: So uh, looking at the brand today from a customer's POV, um, how would you differentiate uh, your product from competitors then?
1: Gosh. Uh, okay, so I'll say we, we kind of have like a couple different. Um, I usually put it in three buckets. So mm-hmm. I mentioned all those brands at the beginning, like, hey, what kettle did potato chips? Jenny said ice cream. Justin said peanut butter. We're trying to do sparkling water. Yeah, I joke that like, when I get Alzheimer's, that will be the only sentence I remember. What <laughs> um, those brands did so well was they differentiated on flavors, they differentiated on ingredients, and they differentiated on brand. And that's kind of the playbook we're trying to follow of one, can we have weird wild flavors you won't find elsewhere? Like you won't find a cactus rose sparkling water anywhere else in the grocery store. Can we have ingredients that you don't typically see in sparkling water or omit ingredients that you do typically see? So for us, that means, Hey, we're going to use herbal extracts to flavor the drinks. And we're not going to use citric acid because mm. we think it gives it kind of a very artificial taste. Yeah. And then finally on brand, you know, I mentioned the word commodity earlier. A lot of sparkling water is just is just a commodity. You know, private label is a huge piece of this business. So that just proves it is a commodity for us. We thought, okay, if we make products that are such so much superior on their both flavors and ingredients, then yeah, we want our brand to reflect that. Can it be as weird and whimsical and peculiar as the uh, flavors inside the cans? So yeah. those are kind of the three main differentiators, probably in order of importance.
0: Amazing. Um, if you can, what would you say is the top seller then uh, flavor wise today?
1: Sure. Yeah, top flavor is Cactus Rose, which was a huge surprise to us, but it continues to be the bestseller.
0: Amazing. So i like to conclude each episode with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret, uh, what would that be?
1: Gosh, it's a long list. How long is your podcast? Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, uh, I will say... Maybe I'll answer that in two different ways. One thing I yeah. learned and one thing I regret. So I'll start with regret. Cause I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, at least in consumer packaged goods do this to start where you're so excited to get a sale, you know, any sale at all that you're selling to everybody. You know, you'd sell to a nursing home, you'd sell to uh, a grocery store the same way. And like all things in life, there's just like an 80, 20 rule of like, you should just get really good at one thing and 80% of your success, if not 90% will come from that one channel. So for yeah. us, You know, I was starting just driving my Subaru around the Bay Area. Now I understand the difference between the natural channel and the conventional channel and the convenience channel and the club channel and like how all these stores fit into pricing tiers and, you know, distributors and which which distributors go to which one of them. At the time, I was just like, these are just all shelves with cash registers that could buy our drink. So I would sell items to bodegas on the corner. I would sell items to grocery stores that have the best fresh produce in the world. And I kind of consider them the same. And I was so surprised how come the, you know, the grocery stores were putting us on the shelf at $2 but the bodegas are putting us on $3 and then the office buildings were selling into, you know, we don't really have a price tag. Yeah. Like w- what that does is, yeah, it's a great way of meeting a lot of consumers, but now you need a different marketing strategy for each of those channels. You need mm. different pricing, different distributor, and it just gets way more complicated and pretty quickly you're just like, you have death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah. So. Yeah. I guess what I learned there was like, yes, start in one channel and learn that one channel really well. Like you should know every natural grocery store chain in the country if you choose to start natural and exactly which distributors get to shelf, exactly which margins each of those uh, retailers take, all of the right marketing tactics to get onto those shelves and get off of those shelves into people's carts. And if you know nothing about other channels, that's actually fine. Because to start, that's all you need to do is be successful in one really influential channel. Mm. So that's what I learned. Now, now I feel like, yes, we've doubled down, tripled down, just unnatural. And we've let a lot of the bodegas, convenience, et cetera, fall by the wayside yeah. um, in a great way. That it, I'll categorize that as what I learned, not as what I regret. Although, yes, I do regret that. But I feel like it was more so learning. it was early on enough that it didn't have any huge kind of implications on the brand, except for a lot of wasted time and energy for me, um, which... I'm wasting time and I'm wasting my own time and energy every day all day in various ways. So that's, <laughs> that's no skin off my back. Um, maybe the thing I regret, I think if we could do it again from the get go, we might go slightly slower. And I say that not because I'm not like grateful of the growth we've had, I think sometimes in the, in the name of growth, a lot of businesses have to do this. You end up um, either skipping over things that are more important than they seem at the time, mm-hmm. or like skimping on details that end up being more important. So I just personality-wise am someone that moves fast and then goes back and like corrects my mistakes. Um, like my first draft is very far from my fifth draft in any essay I've ever written. And I think sometimes in entrepreneurship that's a really great thing, because you can just like move, move, send out invoices, move on with your life where I felt like maybe a couple of times that came back to hurt us is, oh gosh, when I go back with a red pen to fix it, sometimes it's too late. Yeah, Sometimes like our our old uh, images of our old packaging are places they shouldn't be, but I just didn't go back and change them. Or uh, shoot, when we launched with that retailer, we didn't have the right promo strategy in place because I was moving too fast. And now I have to kind of pull it back and get the right promo strategy with the buyer, but now they're impossible to reach. So in general, I say whatever regret is, is like moving a little too fast personally. Um, and if I could have been more thoughtful then a lot of those things, now we have a team to execute on. So we're fine. But at the time when it was just me, yeah, so many things ended up, you know, on the cutting room floor that probably were more important than that. Mm, definitely.
0: Well, Paul, again, thank you so much for taking the time. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out aurabora at com.
1: Cool. Thank you, Cameron. Appreciate it.
0: Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.